If you would, uh, please uh, open up your scriptures to Acts chapter 15. We're going to have this on the screen as well. Um, if you have an app, obviously open that up. It's not lost on me that I am using a device as well. So feel free to open up a device or share with your neighbor next to you. Um, we've been in a series. Uh, uh, you, you can leave that up, actually. Ava, go ahead and leave that next one up. We're going to get to that real quickly. Uh, with the map of West Seattle. Um, we're in a series called What Happens When the Holy Spirit Leads the Way, and we've been going through these different uh, cities that the disciples were uh, traveling to and from in the book of Acts. Acts is part two to Luke's gospel. If you're unfamiliar with the scriptures, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, which tell the story about Jesus in differing ways. And Luke, who wrote Luke, also wrote Acts. So Acts is like volume two. And um, we're in this series kind of just going from city to city and examining what, what's happening. A lot of people read the book of Acts and they go, oh, it must be the Acts of the disciples. But really, the primary figure, the protagonist in the story is the Holy Spirit. And so we're, we're examining what the Holy Spirit's up to and how he's leading that first century church right in its infancy and how it's forming and shaping this people that because it was shaped and formed the way it was, it survived and not only that, it thrived and we are where we are today. There's a church, you are here, and we as a church, as a group of people are here because of the things in, that this church did. So, um, how many of you guys know how many different church denominations there are in the United States? Want to venture a guess? Just shout out a number. A hundred? Anybody else? Thousand. Anybody else? All churches. Talking about denominations. All denominations. This is an awkward question. I should have done like the jelly bean thing and been like, how many jelly beans are in this jar? And make a guess and you win a prize. Then more of you would have been, huh? Four hundred fifty. Too many. <laughs> I like that. Okay. Yeah. So um, it's interesting to think about this when you talk about the Book of Acts because there was there weren't denominations. There's just a church, a group of people that are following Jesus called the Way, and in one particular city, Antioch, they are first called Christians, kind of like a nickname. That the people, they didn't call themselves Christians. People who saw them gathering and doing the things they did and the way they behaved, they looked at them and said, what's your deal? Why are you doing the things you're doing? Why are you acting the way you're acting? Why are you gathering at this time? And why are you eating these meals this way? And how come you're taking care of each other, people who don't belong to your family? What's your deal? And they, they were like, well, they keep talking about this guy named Jesus, who was the Christ. Well, I'm just going to call them Christians. Okay, and it's really interesting to think that how the, as that original church formed, there was only one church. There was only one church. Since then, the church has split split countless times, right? And Tim shouted out, Tim shouted out, "There's too many," right? Um, and those splits happened 
maybe this is an awkward topic for us to talk about, but those schisms and splits happened because there was one group in a church that thought about some particular issue or something that happened, and they're like, we think this is the right way to move forward, or we think this is the right opinion to hold. And this other group said, no, we think you're wrong. We think that's wrong. This is the right way to move forward or whatever. And some of them split because they thought Christianity should be practiced in one way, shape, or form. And the others said, no, we think it should be practiced this way in a different manner. And others, others said, no. Examples, sometimes, some examples would be, okay, there's churches that think that you should not use, it's not that you shouldn't have a rock band, or that you shouldn't have, it's that you shouldn't have any instruments. You shouldn't have a piano or an organ or anything, or an orchestra, you shouldn't have any instruments. And so churches split over that. Others said, uh, further back in history, they said, no, you cannot have any iconography. You cannot have any depictions or paintings of Jesus or the apostles or the Last Supper, or you can't even have a cross, some said. Uh, that's not, we don't, they, the danger in that is it could, could become an idol, you know, or something like that. And others said, no, that's fine, you know, and churches actually split over this. Basically, we're talking about how people have a lot of different opinions. You all don't have a lot of different opinions, don't you? You all think the same way. You all came from the same place. You're all homogenous, right? No. Um, for example, uh, here's... It's not... Part of me wants to say, and you're allowed to have this conversation, believe it or not. The preacher can actually say this too. Part of me wants to say, some of those... Hello. Or maybe not. Well, the Spirit is saying, maybe not. All right, you're laughing, but I'm going to get you. I'm going to take it down a notch here. In the 1840s, the church split over a really big issue. You know what that was? Slavery. Part of the church said, that's not okay. And I don't think that's okay. You know, I think, I think they were right to say that's not okay. And they and the church split over slavery, you know, um, and apparently, apparently we haven't gotten over that. We still have some work to do as a country and as a church. Um, but they split over it, and then other times the church split over things that I wouldn't consider deal breakers. Things that things that um, I would consider very small and insignificant. Things that are not important, like the worship style or the worship music or stuff like that. Churches split over this. They're, in our church, we're a denomination that's not a denomination. We're an independent Christian church. But we have, I was just talking this morning with someone about like the, back over, over 100 years ago when our church was formed, it started as a unity movement of Methodists and Baptists and Lutherans and Episcopals who said, we're fed up with these denominations, right? And so they said, let's start a unity movement. And then right after the Civil War, they all split. <laughs> and they split into three, right? Um, but down the road at some point, the independent Christian churches, Churches of Christ, they started this thing called the North American Christian Convention. And I've only been to that a couple times in my life, but I've heard and been able to get resources from it at different points in time um, throughout my career as a pastor. And one time, this, this really old guy got up, Right? He gets up and he, they had just finished worshiping. And this is a conference with, you know, thousands of people. And he, get, he gets up and every, a really well-known pastor that everyone knew. And he gets up and he's, he's retired and he's been a, a big voice in the church. And he says, I just got to say something. 
I just got to say something. I don't like the new music either. I like the hymns. And there's just a big round of applause, clapping and everything, you know. He waits for it to die down and he goes, but you know what? You know what? It's not about what I like. My kids like this music. My grandkids like this music. And let's not forget, the worship time, no matter what the music is, no matter what it is, is directed towards God. It is not about you. Dead silence after he says this, right? Because he got them all riled up. Yeah. And then he said, that ain't right. It's about God. It is about God. And, and then he went on to say, we're a future forward facing uh, church. We're always about the next generation, you know. And after that dead silence, the same people stood up and cheered. <laughs> and all it took was one guy to go, stop being selfish. And he was admitting his own guilt in that, you know. And, and here's the thing. That's a lesson that needs to be learned over and over and over again. What we're singing today, when my kids, when my kids are grandparents and there's some other form of worship music, and, but the church is split over this stuff. The church is split over this stuff that seemingly it should not split over, you know. But then there's other issues that like there's a big schism over racism in the 1840s in the church that seems like, okay, at some point you might need to take a stand. And you're like, where's the pastor going with this? <laughs> right? I'm feeling a little weird. Well, what we're going to talk about today, what, this is the lead into Acts chapter 15. There is a dispute in this chapter, in the very first church. They start having an argument. They start fighting a little bit. It's about what one group in the church thought was the right way to do things, and another group in the church thought their way was the right thing right way to do things, and they thought they maybe thought that each other were wrong, right? This is totally irrelevant to us today, right? No, it's not. So as churches were forming in these, in these cities around the Mediterranean and in different cultural backgrounds, like what we talked about last week in uh, Pisidian Antioch, Paul and Barnabas said that the gospel was for the Gentiles, and the Jews rejected it last week. In, in the story that we covered. And with these different cultural backgrounds, um, they started having conversations about what they thought was right and wrong. And these, these, they started to pop up more and more. And it became complex. And as the issues arose, the church in Jerusalem, where the movement began, became the place where they would take up these issues and they would discern how they're going to move forward in this new Christian faith. And so we're going to dive into that today. Um, in this, in your scriptures, there's usually a little subtitle at the top that says the Jerusalem what? Anybody want to, what is it? Council. Yeah, it's a council. They're getting together to convene a meeting about these issues. But before this kind of official council in Acts chapter 15, there was kind of an unofficial one in Acts chapter 11. You won't have to turn there, but you can look at it later if you want. In Acts chapter 11, Peter goes to the leaders in the church. Okay, Peter, who was the follower of Jesus, he goes to the officials in the church and he tells them that, excuse me, he tells them that he believes the Gentiles uh, are now allowed to be let into the faith. He says those who were not Jews 
those who don't know anything about our Jewish history, they are now allowed into this Jewish faith. So it's kind of a big deal to say that non-Jews could be let into uh, the faith. Um, and I wanted, oh, I didn't even address the picture up there on the screen. So there are like 17 little dots on there, all different denominations. Those are the churches in West Seattle. Okay? And here's the thing. For all of our differences, if you added up all, all the, like, however many people are in these churches, it's an abysmal, tiny, less than 1% of our community population that goes to church and is part of a church. So you could use way more churches, or these churches could all work on figuring out how to together collectively tell the story of Jesus to our community in a better unified way, right? Now, back to this. I forgot to address that. So um, so there's this huge question for these Jews who had become followers of Jesus and are now being called Christians. They weren't quite sure how to move forward because they were like this little sect of uh, Jewish people that had a different belief. They were like, hey, we've all been waiting for the Messiah and we found that person in and through the person of Jesus. And so how can we let this other big group of people in on this if they don't actually know that? They're not from our tribe. They're not from our blood. And so Peter had seen the Holy Spirit poured out over a group of people. We are told about this in Acts chapter 10. There's a guy named Cornelius. Uh, there's been this resurgence of biblical names and naming babies lately. I'm still waiting for Cornelius. haven't really heard that one. But um, Cornelius... Peter goes to him and tells him about Jesus. And Cornelius' friends and family have the Spirit come over them just as he had seen happen to the Jews. And so in Acts 11, verse 18, Peter reports this to a kind of committee. It's like it's the unofficial council before the official council. He says that God has given to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life, is what he says to them. So that is the whole setup for what's going to happen here in Acts chapter 15. All right? So they've already in Acts chapter, because of what happened to Peter in Acts chapter 10, and what he says to them in Acts chapter 11, already, already they are in agreement that they know and agree that the Gentiles are in. They're like, yeah, they're in. And I think there's a slide for this. They're in. But the question now is, how different are we going to let these Gentiles be? What things do they need to do to conform to our beliefs before we're really going to accept them? What are they going to do now that they're in our club? How are they going to behave? You know, you have to dress in a suit and tie if you're going to be part of our group. Right? Okay? Can't, can't wear shorts to church. Or you better wear closed-toe uh, closed shoes or something like that. No sandals. You know, they're, they're, are they thinking up excuses in order to like say, no, you can't be part of this, even though we've said you can be? So we're going to examine this. I want to start in Acts chapter 14, verse 27. That's where we're going to jump in. And it says this. This is right before we get into Acts chapter 15. On arriving there, uh, Paul and Barnabas are back in Antioch. And we've talked about how there's two Antiochs. This is the one on the Mediterranean it's Antioch Prime. It's like 650,000 people, okay, at that time. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers. They're saying this, 
unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. So the question here is not whether the Gentiles are in or out. It's whether we think they need to follow the law in the way that they have done prior to knowing Jesus. Is it okay for them not to be circumcised? And there's this group of Pharisees that says the Gentiles must be circumcised in order to be saved. Okay, so you're like, that's the dispute? How is this really the setup for us and how we deal with disputes, right? Because if you're like me, you go, uh... You look at this and you say, that's ridiculous. That's totally ridiculous. Why, why would we... Of course the Gentiles don't have to be circumcised to be saved. But whenever you have that reaction to Scripture, here's what I would encourage you to do. You're reading your Scriptures and you're like... Or you're listening to a podcast or you hear the preacher say something, you're like, duh. Whenever you have that reaction to, to what you're reading in the Scriptures, that it's like a no-brainer, and you think whatever's happening, especially if it's like the bad guys, you're like, why would they act that way? It's a good idea to try and put yourself in their shoes, to look at it from their perspective. So, here's this brand new religion. Brand new religion. Christianity. It's an offshoot of Judaism. Okay? Of this ancient tradition. They weren't quite sure how to navigate what they had from the old and what they were given in the new. They had just for the very first time been nicknamed Christians. And there's like all these different schools of thought as far as who can be saved. And in this context, the question of who can be saved, the obvious part of that that they're talking about is who can be let into the group. It actually means, well, they're not talking just about who gets to go to heaven or who gets to be saved by Jesus. They're also saying who can be let into the group. All right? And so circumcision was a really big deal to them because it had been a part of the law for centuries. In fact, it goes all the way back to Genesis 17. So it goes back millennia. In Genesis 17, God tells Abraham, this is my covenant. You are to keep between me and your offspring after you. Every one of your males must be circumcised. This is direct from God. It's not a question. It's not arbitrary. There's a lot of symbolism to it. It represented a bodily sacrifice. It was a sign of commitment to God, and it unified the tribe in a way that no other tribe was unified at that time. It leveled the playing field because in any group or any tribe of people at that point, in the very beginning of family groups getting started and organizing themselves, you had some people that were the haves, and you had some people that were the have-nots, right? Totally unlike today. And this was something that leveled the playing field. So you could have everything. You could have nothing. But you've both gone through this. And it unified you. Okay? And it, it, was a, it served as a reminder of who you were set apart to be as a person and as a people. You, were to, you had a God that had told you to do this to unify you. And they all had it in common. When you think about it that way, it makes you wonder if some of these Pharisees were just asking the question not from a place of, oh, we just want to burden you with something. We want to add to your plate. We want to make you do something that you don't want to do. Duh. No one wants to do this, by the way, just in case you're wondering. We just want to come up with something that will keep you excluded. I think that's how we read it often. Like, we just want to come up with something to keep you excluded. Instead, though, they might have just been wanting to make sure that they were part of the club. They're like, okay, we've let you in, but we want, to make, we want to make doubly sure that the Gentiles were in this covenant relationship. Like, 
okay, we know about Jesus, but way back there was this. So we just want to make sure we're covered. We just want some insurance, you know. Maybe they wanted to make sure that the, the, if, if they had to go through it, then you have to go through it so that we're on the same terms, so that there, we have this in common. But here's what's clear to me. I think that what the church wrestled with in Acts 15 is something that we still wrestle with today. Not that issue, right? Not that particular issue. Not that same question about circumcision. But it's the question of how do we know what's right? How do we know what's wrong, that we, that how we live out our faith? Especially as the culture changes like, like it was changing for the Jewish faith. And I think that we have to ask these questions both corporately as a church and individually as, as individuals. As we read the chapter, I think you're going to see, see something very clear. The first century church took three steps in deciding whether or not the Gentiles had to be circumcised in order to be saved. And those three steps are going to be instructive for us too. And uh, I want to keep looking at it. So dive back into Acts chapter 15. And we're going to start in verse number 2. And it says this, This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem. You might be wondering why it says up when Jerusalem is in the south and Antioch is in the north. It's because Jerusalem's on a hill, and to them, everything was down. Everything was down, okay? So they're like up and down. That's, that's their, why they're talking about it that way. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood, in case you were wondering if any of the Pharisees became Christians from the story of the Gospels, they did, apparently. And they stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. So here's the first thing I think we see the church do here. They turn to the leadership in their community and they do this together. It's a group of them. They do this together. It's not like Paul says, well, I have my opinion and I'm just going to go my own way. Okay. And Barnabas says, well, I'm in agreement with you. We're just going to start our own little faction over here. And we're not going to talk to anybody about it. And it's just what we believe. Or they just say, decide to, I'm going to be silent and not really talk to anybody about it. They didn't just make a decision. They didn't just react. They didn't have a knee-jerk reaction. Paul didn't say, here's what it is, and I'm going to dictate it to the rest of you. But they actually gathered together as a group of people, and they discussed it with their community. Right? And it's actually encouraging to see that within this group that had different opinions on the subject. Both sides of the argument were represented. And you also have... As you'll see when we keep reading, you have many different voices speak. They didn't just hear Paul speak. They didn't just hear Peter speak. But you also hear Barnabas and you also hear James. So the, and you heard the Pharisees bring up their, their side of the argument as, too, as well. So the first thing we see is that they make this decision as a group. It's not just one person in a vacuum going, here's what I think, and it's going to be what everybody, it's going to be what everybody has to agree to. So it's good that the group had different opinions. And it's good that multiple voices were heard within that group. The next thing we see is that they consulted the work of the Holy Spirit. So they looked at what the Holy Spirit was doing. And they kind of looked at the tangible evidence. So if you keep reading, turn to verse 7. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you 
that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. Well, what were they telling them about? What's this evidence? What's this, what's this thing that he says back in verse 7? God made a choice among you. And then he, they tell them about in the last verse, in verse 12, signs and wonders that God had done among them through the Gentiles. So when Peter is speaking here, he's talking about what he witnessed through Cornelius. There, I, I have to imagine, because just right before this, there's like, hey, we have a story of what happened when God came to the Gentiles and poured out his spirit upon them. He's talking about what he witnessed through Cornelius and his family and his friends. He's referring back to that encounter in Acts chapter 10. And then in Acts 15, 12, you see uh, Paul and Barnabas say to, say to everyone, you've seen what the Holy Spirit has done through the Gentiles. So I like, here's what they do. They gather together. And the second thing they do is they're like, we've seen, we have stories. We have evidence of the Holy Spirit saying that th- these people are in And here's how God is loving them. And it's through faith alone in Jesus that they are part of this. That's the tangible evidence. That's the sort of fruit they have seen. So, they gather together. They consult the work of the Holy Spirit. And then the third thing they do is they turn to the tradition of the Scriptures. Okay? And that these Scriptures have shaped and formed them. And so when they turn to the Scriptures, they're turning to the Old Testament. So they open up the scroll. They start reading from Acts or from Amos, actually. And this is what it says in Acts 15, verse 13. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon, that's Peter, has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written, after this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things. And James says, things known from long ago, people. Things known from long ago. Okay? He's kind of like their Gandalf leading the way, James here. And he says, it's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. So, recap. Here's what happened. They gathered together in community for this discernment process. They looked at the evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit. And number three, they turned to the Scripture to see what it says about this. And James is quoting, as I said before, from the prophet Amos. When it says, after this I will return, I will rebuild, these are God's... These are They viewed these as God's very words speaking through the prophet Amos. It's a prophecy that says... God's kingdom will include everyone. And the word there, the word there in Hebrew and Amos for everyone is everyone. <laughs> all peoples, okay? Even all the Gentiles. It's like it makes it doubly everyone. And just in case you were wondering what everyone means, even all the Gentiles. Not just 
the people you want to cherry pick out of the crowd and go, yeah, you're good, you're good, you know. And it also says, over whom my name has been called. That's a significant phrase in the Hebrew. Over whom my name has been called means they're part of God's family. They're part of his family. Most every one of us in here, I would bet wager, and I would bet are Gentiles. So we get to be part of God's family. And that's a significant thing. And and what he's saying is we're not going to force them into submission. You have to be part of our family, but only if you do these extra things. You are just part of the family. You are grafted in. We have the same blood now. We have the same rights. We We have the same terms. We get the same promises as part of this covenant relationship. So, after taking these three steps in Acts, the early church, they gather together, they talk about the Holy Spirit and what the evidence that the Holy Spirit has given them, and then they read and discuss the words of the prophets through the Scriptures. They come to this conclusion in verse 19. We'll pick it up there. James says, It's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, instead, we should write to them telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the animals, and from blood. And you're like, wait, what? Okay, not circumcision, but then he just adds these four seemingly random little things there. Um, He lists these four things that we're not going to get into today, but in the interest of brevity, he's basically saying these are four things that were practiced back then in pagan temples to the pantheon of Greek and Roman gods People thought, we have to do these things. We have to, we have to give food that's to, specifically to an idol, engage in sexually immoral acts, and there would be meat from strangled animals and from blood that came from them that were all involved in the cult rituals for like Zeus and all the other gods that we talked about in our series on John. Okay? And so they're like, listen, All that stuff is involved in idolatry to other gods beside the one true God. He's like, just tell them not to have anything to do with that. The circumcision thing is not the big deal for us here. We have a God that we can commune with in a direct way through the Holy Spirit. You don't need to do those things up there. Besides the fact that they're all going to, in that day and age, much of that is going to mess you up. Okay? So, let's recap. We see the first century church, we see them turn inward to their community and go, okay, let's figure this out together instead of go, "Mm, mm." and this might be hard for us today because we're all about the individual. We're all about me, myself and I, and I can have my opinion. And we also live in a culture where it's like, I can't be politically incorrect or whatever. If If I say my real opinion on anything, especially in church, Somebody's going to eat me alive, or I'm going to cause a big problem, you know. But this first church says, no, let's talk about it. Let's just talk. Let's have a talk about it. And then let's, what's the process that we go through? And they talk about the work of the Holy Spirit, and they observe that. And then they turn to this tradition of the Scripture. And I think it sets us a really good example for what we can do when we're wrestling with questions of right and wrong, whether that's corporately or individually. I think, I think people of faith, that's you and me, that we're called to wrestle with these questions of faith and the things that are happening in our culture. We're called to do that in community and through consulting the Scriptures and looking at the evidence of the Holy Spirit. And I think we need all three of those things. You can't just cherry-pick one or the other. I think our temptation is to go, well, 
uh, I'm dealing with some situation or scenario or relationship or whatever societal issue that I'm trying to figure out and, and figure out how to have an opinion about that alongside my faith, whatever it is. And I think our temptation is to go, okay, well, I'm, I'm just going to pray about it and I'm going to have about it, but I'm not going to really talk to any other Christians about it in a good way, in a wholesome way. I'm not going to look at scriptures about it. I'm going to try to just sum up my opinion of what I think those scriptures say without really diving into whatever it is, you know. And the problem with that is we see a lot of damage when that's done. You, we, can, we can cite countless examples. Anybody heard of David Koresh? You guys remember him? That was a big deal back when I was growing up, David Koresh, you know. Here's a guy who said he could hear the voice of God directly and didn't really look at scriptures or ask other people to look at the scriptures with him or ascertain what the Holy Spirit's up to. And of course, this is an extreme example, right? And when you do that, when you only go with like, well, I'm, I say that I'm listening to the Holy Spirit. If what you say is the Holy Spirit doesn't jive with a conversation with the community and what we see in scripture as evidence, then we need to question that. Okay? Then we should question that. It's not okay to just do one. We can see that all the time, even, you know, our, in our, things just go way off track, you know. It, what, the, the issue in the 1840s about slavery that we're still dealing with today. You know, you got some people who think it's okay, you got some people who think it's not okay. And they didn't sit down and discuss it. And they didn't say, what do the scriptures say about it? And they, you know, that type of thing. You got, this is what leads to things like, oh, we think, we think that we, you know, the church at one point, you got to own this if you're a Christian. We thought at one time it was all right to just go on a holy crusade. <laughs> Not okay, you know? Um, pretty dubious reasoning. You can see this on both sides of the political aisle. People in, in our current context who say, I'm a Christian on both sides. Great, you're a Christian. You take a verse and you take it out of context and you say it on national television and Half the, half the country and maybe even more goes, whoa, I don't think, you can't just speak for all of us that way. And they misquote it. And the rest of the nation who's not even Christian goes, yep, see where that gets, you know, something like that. Both sides of the aisle. Okay. So don't freak out. Both sides of the aisle here. Okay. In other words, if you only do one of these things, like I'm just going to cherry pick scripture to, justify, whatever. If you cherry-pick Scripture, you can get in a world of hurt really fast, justifying any course of action or for anything that you want to do. And it won't be good. Okay, You're serving your own needs. Or a, a church can say, this just is going to benefit us if we take this, this interpretation of whatever. But we're not, we don't ask anybody outside. We go, okay, you know, what if we had an issue to deal with? Here's something most churches wouldn't even contemplate at all. What if we said, we're dealing with an issue, we've, we've discerned what we think the Holy Spirit is saying, the evidence and the fruit of what's coming along with that. We've looked at the Scripture, we've gotten together several times to talk about it, but if then we went over to our neighbors down and said, we're dealing with this, can you help? What do you guys think too? We need, some out, we need the other Christians down the block that don't look like us. In other words, not a white bread church. Okay, it's all homogenous. Yeah, I just said that. Okay? Because we all pretty much look the same. Most of us, right? 
And it's not, so we go, okay, well, how, if we make this decision in our own little vacuum, how does that affect the rest of the church? Because we are connected. We are connected. Okay? So, you can do a lot of damage if you take one thing of those three on its own. Alright? Anyway. Something that I like about Acts 15. I want to draw your attention back to the text and we're going to end it. We're going to wrap it up here. Something that I like about Acts 15 is that the question that surfaced for them, it wasn't something that ultimately split the church. At least that's not what we read. They are willing to deal with something that was potentially divisive, potentially could lead to a schism, potentially could leave a lot of feelings hurt. And they said, we're going to deal with this. And it did, what we see is that it didn't split the church. Okay, It doesn't say that the people who disagreed said, bye-bye. We're going to go down and start, you know, XYZ church down here now. It sounds like they came to this consensus together. It's like, and it's likely that everyone in the room was probably not okay with that, whatever the consensus was. There was probably a few dissenters, right? But from what we can observe, it did not tear them apart. It did not tear them apart. This is hopeful for us and any church in our day and age that you can actually, as quote-unquote family, disagree and still be the church on certain issues. Okay? They gathered together. They consulted the Scriptures. They looked at the evidence of the Holy Spirit. And they landed where they did together. Now, you all look very serious. And I can understand why, because when you talk about an issue that can divide, every single one of you probably has multiple issues that are surfacing in your head and in your heart right now. But we have, I've said this before, uh, leadership of our church has decided that we're not going to shy away from tough scriptures that make us deal with tough things, and we're going we're gonna to deal with things as they come to us. You might be asking a question about something right now in your own faith or maybe corporately as it comes to the life of the church where you might have tension with a particular issue. Do you have any tension with other followers when it comes to, uh, of, of Jesus when it comes to how you live out this Christian way of life? Or maybe you don't even know, maybe you don't even know where to start, live, how to even start living this Christian way of life. I mean, we, we put it on a little card that you want to know, give your life to Jesus and that kind of thing. But we, you know, there's a massive group of people in this room that believe Jesus is the Savior of the world, that He's the Son of God. And you have to look no further than Him to know what God thinks of you. He loves you so much. He loves you so much. He's not keeping a list of all the things you've done wrong. He's not. He's not. He's just constantly pursuing you. He's constantly right there waiting for you to turn to Him. And maybe you just need to enter into that. So I'd invite you to come chat with me afterwards about Jesus, about the love He has for you, about what it means to start that life with Him. But if you've already started that life, you might have a bunch of questions and you don't know how to live it out, what it looks like. And there's probably an issue or issues that you've been thinking about. I just want to ask you three questions. And I, this might be uncomfortable for some of you because I don't like to end, I don't like to end the sermon with, here's what you need to go do now. I just, because I don't know what's going on in your heart. I don't know what's going on in your mind. But here are the questions. 
have you purposefully gathered together in community or with our church leaders to seek a respectful way to address whatever that issue is? Because that's what we see happening here. That's what we see happening here in our Holy Scriptures. Maybe you're just like, I don't want to deal with it. Maybe that's why you haven't done that. Maybe, you know. Uh, I'm not saying that if you wanted to sit down with our leaders that we'd be like totally comfortable with whatever you want to discuss. All right? But I'm saying that we're available and we will do it with you. We've committed to that. Have you, with that group, sought to recall the evidence of the Holy Spirit? What does the Holy Spirit say? What is the Holy Spirit saying? Where's the fruit of that? Where's the evidence of that? And have you, with that group, your church, family, leadership, carefully and purposefully thought the wisdom of the Holy Scriptures? Have you done that? Have you done that? Or do you need direction with that? Because I think, I think in this day and age, it, people think that you can't really have an opinion and they don't really know where to start in the Scriptures. And if you need help with that, we can help you with that. So I'm going to call the band to come. I... And you recognize that this is a sermon that's not like wrapped up in a nice little neat bow for you. And here you go, feeling out all fuzzy feeling, leaving all fuzzy feeling and happy. But at the same time, you should be, you should be relieved that you're allowed to ask questions and that you're allowed to have a conversation and that you're allowed in the context of our faith community to be a real community and disagree with each other and still love each other and still get along. And more than that, be a witness for Jesus in this world and join him in what he's up to in the neighborhood. Donna is going to come in a minute after uh, to lead us in communion. This is an, what we call Jesus' table. It's open to all who believe in him.